Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Russia is shelling Ukraine less than 100 miles from the border of a NATO country. The lead starts right now. Another Ukrainian city has fallen to Russian troops as U.S. officials say Russia is making advances and there are growing fears around the world that Russia may be planning to use chemical weapons. Then the pain at the pump is much worse for some families. We're going to talk to one mother who has to choose between filling up her gas tank or throwing her daughter a birthday party. This while oil companies make record profits. Plus, we're going to sit down with Bill Barr, the former attorney general under Donald Trump, now sounding the alarm about his former boss's temperament. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to the lead up, Jake Tapper. We start with breaking news in our world lead Russian forces advancing on multiple key Ukrainian cities, including the capital of Kiev, and intensifying and expanding their brutal assault. That's the latest assessment from Pentagon officials today as we see devastating new images such as this. Ukrainian officials say Russian missiles targeted a residential area in the strategic port city of Dnipro, demolishing multiple apartment buildings and a school. And giant balls of fire filled the sky after Russian forces attacked targets in the far west of Ukraine for the first time in this war. West. Local officials say missile strikes damaged at least two airports near Lutsk, killing one person. This development particularly worrying for NATO countries, given the attack happened just some 70 miles from Ukraine's border with Poland. Poland, of course, a NATO ally where thousands of American troops are deployed. Today, President Biden has announced further steps aimed at punishing Putin, saying that the U.S., along with the G7 and European Union, all of them will move to suspend all normal trade relations with Russia. Biden also announcing the U.S. will ban imports from major sectors of Russia's economy, including diamonds, vodka and seafood and prevent American luxury items such as clothing, jewelry, and cars from being sold to Russians. CNN's Clarissa Ward starts off our coverage from the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. And Clarissa, the brother of Kiev's mayor told CNN today that, that the Russian siege of Kiev, he fears, could happen at any moment. What's the situation on the ground right now? Yeah, that's right, Jake. He also went on to say that he estimates that this city has about enough food to last for two weeks. If that siege just start, you can imagine two weeks is actually not a very long time at all. And what we're seeing around the city is intensified fighting in the west, uh, around an area called Stayanka, also in the northwest, uh, and the north around an area called Hostomol. That's quite close to where we were today. We could hear constant uh, fighting going back and forth, artillery shells going back and forth. There's also been a lot of fighting to the north of Kiev uh, in the city of Cherniv, which has seen some of the ugliest bombardments since this conflict began, and also a number of strikes as well in Zhitomir. Heavy fighting there, again, that's also in the west. But the thing that is really troubling authorities here in Kiev is that the Russians are also making a push on the eastern side of the city. We talked yesterday, Jake, about uh, this, this suburb on the east of Brov 
ovary and major battles that were taking place there with Ukrainian forces literally picking off Russian tanks as they tried to press further into the city. It was a little quieter in Brovary today, but that has not stopped uh, Russian troops from continuing to advance. And of course, all of that is feeding into this very real fear that it could be a matter of days and not weeks before this city is entirely encircled. We heard also from the mayor of Kiev himself, who said, listen, this is still the prize, Kiev. This is the objective, to surround it, to starve it, to bombard it, and to try to enforce regime change here. Clarissa, we're now more than two weeks into this war. Millions of Ukrainians have fled, but most are still there in Ukraine. When you speak to the civilians who are still there, what do they tell you about their new reality? Yeah, I think what's the most extraordinary or striking to me, Jake, is that you see ordinary people who had ordinary lives just a couple of weeks ago stepping up into extraordinary situations. So we spent the day today with a lawyer called Daria and a scientist called Anton, who no longer do their day jobs, but are now driving in to the the suburb of Irpin, which has been hit so hard now for more than 10 days. And they're going in there to try to rescue people, uh, taking incredible risks on Honestly, to try to help remaining civilians who are stranded and don't know how to get out safely. We also today met an American called Dwight Crow. He's from San Francisco, California. Uh, he works for a startup company with hearing aids. And he said that once he heard about the invasion, he felt that he had to come and contribute. Take a listen. When I saw the invasion, I, 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 I honestly bought a plane ticket and got here as quick as I could. This feels like the biggest fight for freedom I've seen in my lifetime. Have you ever been in a war zone before? Not like this. For most Americans, this would be a little out of their comfort zone. This is a little out of my comfort zone. Uh, it's it's scary, you know, when you hear the, the bombs going off, but at the same time, I mean, you just, there's people a lot closer to it than us, and, and they're really the ones in harm's way, and we're just doing our part to get them out of here. And those people, many of them, are still trapped, not just in Irpin, in Bucha, in Barodyanka, uh, in Vorzel. There are many of these Kiev suburbs that have been hit so hard, Jake, and it has been really tough to try to get people out. Humanitarian corridors that should have been established have had a very spotty record of being effective. They've often been stopped by Russian forces or fired upon even in some cases. Authorities say that they have now taken about 20,000 people out of those areas, but still, a lot of people remain trapped and are desperate to get out. And the other thing you hear, Jake, over and over again, for people who do get out, where do we go now? This is not where their journey ends. This is not where their problems and their challenges end. Honestly, it's just the beginning of another journey, Jake. CNN's Clarissa Ward, live in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe. Joining us now to discuss, Natalie Jaresko, the former Ukrainian Minister of Finance. Thank you so much for joining us. President Biden announced further economic punishments of Russia today in partnership with the G7 and the European Union. Do you think the U.S. is doing enough right now to deter Putin to help Ukraine? Thank you, Jake. I am grateful for what's been announced today, in particular on the trade side. But no, it's not enough. We're acting too timidly. We're not acting with the level of urgency that this deserves. Ukrainians are fighting for their very existence, and we're tranching this out week by week, piece by piece. What specifically do you want the U.S. to do? These are the toughest economic sanctions ever put on Russia in the history of of Russia or the Soviet Union, for that matter. What what more should be done? Well, it's also the worst war that Russia's started and 
the largest number of killings, slaughtering, and uh, the biggest threat to our world order. In terms of what more, I think we need to go broader and deeper. So we've sanctioned a select number of state-owned banks. We need to sanction all the state-owned banks. We need to sanction all the state-owned energy companies. We need to sanction all the state-owned commodity companies. We've sanctioned some of the political and economic elite. We need to go deeper and farther. We need to take the top 100 oligarchs on the Forbes 100 list. We need to take the full Russian National Security Council, the Federation Council, their, their, their parliament, as well as the government members. We need to do this in order to isolate uh, that economy right now. We need to do this in order to stop financing and fueling this war. Today, Putin claimed that there have been, quote, certain positive advances, he said, in diplomatic negotiations with Ukraine. Shortly after that, Vice President Kamala Harris said this. From everything that we know and have witnessed, Putin shows no sign of engaging in serious diplomacy. How do you think this war ends? Is there any diplomatic path? I'll always hope and we always need to try. But no, I don't believe that he's good for his word. Every humanitarian corridor that's set up, he shoots at the civilians. Every time he comes to uh, the, the, the talks, the dipl- diplomatic talks, the demands are basically for the annihilation of the country as it stands. Again, denying our existence as a nation to have our sovereignty, to have our territorial integrity. And he will accept nothing less is what he keeps saying. So I think if we take him at his word, if we take him at the op-ed he published last summer saying that Ukrainians don't exist as a nation, then it's hard to believe that a diplomatic solution is possible. We need to help Ukraine defeat him at war. A journalist for the website Unheard said, quote, Ukraine's survival is the world's only guarantee that this conflict does not expand into Europe and the wider world. I think that there is this expectation by the NATO countries that Putin would not go beyond non-NATO countries. Do you think it's possible or even likely uh, that Putin uh, would start to take over other countries if he's successful in Ukraine? I think that we've seen a history of him going further. So it starts with Chechnya, then it moves in 2008 to Georgia, then in 2014 Crimea and in Donbass, and now this. I don't know why we'd be surprised if we don't stop him here, that he doesn't continue with his appetite for rebuilding the empire. That said, you know, we have risks today with the bombing of nuclear reactor plants. If, God forbid, one of those nuclear reactor plant walls cracks, this is going to affect NATO without it, without anyone ever invading NATO. So I think that we need to take this extraordinarily seriously. This, this has to be put to rest in Ukraine as quickly and urgently as possible. I, I misread that, uh, That by the way. Obviously, that's something that you said to a journalist uh, on the website, Unheard. Um, we've seen Russian forces indiscriminately bombing Ukrainian cities. They're hitting hospitals. They're leveling neighborhoods. Do you worry about how hard it will be for Ukraine to ultimately rebuild? I mean, it seems like this could set the country back possibly generations. I think it's got to be the next big issue we discuss. This is the Marshall Plan uh, of Marshall Plans. We're going to need to rebuild. We're going to need to use the frozen assets uh, that we're sanctioning these entities and these individuals. We need to take those frozen assets and invest them into the rebuilding. This is going to be hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. And we're going to have to make sure that Russia, that cause of this unprovoked aggression, 
pays its uh, share of the damages. What goes through your mind when you see the Russian government officials and Russian propaganda saying that, for instance, uh, that maternity and children's hospital that was bombed, that those are crisis actors, this is not real, that there were Ukrainian terrorists and militia hiding in that hospital? What, what goes through your mind when you hear that? It's just surreal, frankly, to think that you need to bomb a maternity hospital, that there are terrorists inside a maternity hospital. It's just surreal. It's, 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 there's so much untruth here, so much disinformation. When I was in government in 2014 to 16, President Putin began the story of calling our government a Nazi government. He's calling a Jewish president a Nazi. All of these lies are just for his domestic population, but we can't fall for them because Ukraine has been a peaceful country. It has never attacked anyone. Former Ukrainian uh, minister, uh, Natalie Jeresko, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, it's coming. It's sounding like a page out of Putin's playbook. Why there are growing fears Russia may be preparing to use chemical weapons in Ukraine. Then former Attorney General Bill Barr will join us live to talk about his time in the Trump administration. Stay with us. And our world lead, the White House is calling out Russia and China for pushing what they call a coordinated conspiracy theory that falsely claims the Pentagon is operating a biological weapons lab inside Ukraine. The Biden administration says Ukraine operates a little over a dozen biolabs for biodefense and for public health, and the U.S. has provided assistance to the labs in the past in the context of biosafety, as the U.S. has done elsewhere. But the White House insists the charge of a Pentagon bioweapons lab in Ukraine is false. The White House says Russia is using this false claim as a false flag to justify its own potential use of chemical or biological weapons in Ukraine. And now, as CNN's Nina Dos Santos reports, President Biden says Russia will pay a, quote, severe price if they do that. First, it was nuclear weapons Russia claimed Ukraine was working on. Now the Kremlin, with no evidence, is suggesting Kiev has a secret chemical stash, too. These allegations have been debunked multiple times, but fresh talk of chemical weapons is giving cause for concern. What are these allegations of preparing chemical attacks? Have you decided to carry out dechemicalization of Ukraine? Using ammonia? Using phosphorus? What else have you prepared for us? They not only have the capacity, they have a history of using chemical and biological weapons, and that uh, in this moment we should have our eyes open for that possibility. The White House warns Russia could be setting up a false flag operation, laying the groundwork for a chemical attack of its own, just as in Syria, where Russia was accused of providing cover for Bashar al-Assad's regime to use toxic gas on his own people. You know, Russia has this indirect complicity in chemical weapon use, and indeed, um, even went out of its way to try to cover up the Syrian military's use of chemical weapons. Thus far, we haven't seen Russia engaging in full chemical weapons warfare on innocent civilians in large numbers, have we? I mean, it hasn't done that so far. But it is part of what leads people to worry that this is not you know, beyond the realm of possibility. What weapons does Moscow have? No one knows exactly. There's no evidence that Russia has used more common chemical weapons like chlorine and sarin, all abandoned internationally for their cruelty. Uh, Russia would pay a severe price if they use chemical weapons. That price is not yet clear, though. How do you think the world would react? It would be crossing a line, but it's not necessarily um, one that will spark a military response. If, if Putin knows that we will react militarily, then we know that he can decide when and on what terms 
the West enters this war or NATO enters this war, which would be incredibly unwise. At a UN Security Council meeting on Friday, the US was in no mood for disinformation. Today, the world is watching Russia do exactly what we warned it would. Russia is already facing calls for a war crime investigation for its alleged use of other banned weapons. The mere mention of chemical ones is a worrying escalation. Well, Jake, Russia does have some history in making these types of false claims in countries that it has grabbed chunks of. I'm thinking of Georgia back in 2018. It alleged that it had suddenly discovered uh, an illicit weapons stash about 10 years after invading that country. That has been widely disclaimed. It's for this reason that the United States and the UK are so aggrieved that Russia was able to secure the hallowed halls of the UN Security Council to again repeat these falsehoods. The UK in particular is very sensitive to this because, remember, people have been poisoned with nerve agents and nuclear materials on UK soil, allegedly by Russia, Jake. Nina Dos Santos in London, thank you so much. Coming up, quote, you're all losers. That's just one of the many insults former President Trump used against his closest advisors, according to a new memoir from the then Attorney General, Bill Barr, who joins us live next. Stay with us. Topping our politics lead, former Attorney General Bill Barr is out with a new memoir highlighting his role in helping confront former President Trump with the reality that he had indeed lost the 2020 election. Joining us live to discuss former Attorney General Bill Barr, his new book is One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General. Great title. I know it's not your saying, but right. it's a great title. Thanks, um, You write in your book, this is one of the most memorable scenes in the book, about seeing the president throw a fit. You call it a tantrum. This is the summer before the election, during the protests outside the White House in the wake of George Floyd's murder at the hands of a white police officer. You write, quote, the president lost his composure, glaring around the semicircle of officials in front of his desk. He swept his index finger around the semicircle, pointing at all of us. You're all losers, he yelled, his face reddening. He felt we were responsible for the violence around the country, especially around the White House. You're losers, he yelled again, tiny flecks of spit arcing to his desktop. <laughs> Effing losers. It was a tantrum. I was taking it aback and indignant. Well, it's a very, a very, very well-rendered scene. I wanted to read the whole thing for you. But this is not the only time in the book you write about the president and his temperament, which you think is, you suggest is disqualifying. Did those outbursts ever cause you to question his fitness for office or his stability? No, and, and I didn't consider them uh, disqualifying. Uh, you know, I supported his policies. I was very conscious of his uh, personal failings, especially his pettiness and his, his temper when he's not getting his way, his disposition to listen to what, you know, want to hear what, what he wants to hear. Uh, but up until the election, I felt that if you had strong cabinet secretaries who were willing to do battle, you could keep things on track. And I personally felt uh, that we did a pretty good job of that. But after the election, um, I, there was no, he just went off the rails. He wasn't listening to any of his normal advisors. He was listening to this coterie of people who were telling him that he lost the election. Well, you definitely write... I mean, that, that, he, that he was stolen. That he was yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. But you, you, you definitely write that... Uh he, that something changed after the election that yeah. went off the rails. But you do write throughout your time, you, you say um, that you were disgusted by things he said or did. You say you take, took a dangerous term after the election, you yeah. called it to Pompeo, yeah. but significantly detached from reality, his constant bellicosity diminishes him in the office. In, in the spring of 2020, you said he was acting like a hyperactive maniac. Um, yeah. 
Well, you say he doesn't have the temperament uh, to lead the country going forward. Well, it, it, he's not my idea of a president, and I feel that uh, I felt he was going to lose the election because he was not controlling himself. He was allowing this pettiness to come through, and I feel uh, it's one of his great failings. I think a lot of people agree with his policies. They like his strength and his directness. Uh, but to the extent they support him, it's despite these, uh, this kind of obnoxious behavior. It's not because of it, in my opinion. Your book ends with the conclusion that the party and the country <clears throat> would be better suited if a different candidate led the way going forward. You say there's an impressive array of younger candidates. If Trump runs and others challenge him, which might happen, you never know, would you get involved in the primary fight to defeat him to absolutely to support yes. one of those other candidates? Yes, I think the coming uh, presidential election would be a, a good opportunity for the Republican Party because, from my standpoint, the the progressive left has is sort of showing a sort of a totalitarian temperament and has uh, and it's, and and I think the Republicans can win a decisive majority, but I don't think we can do it with Trump. He's just too divisive a candidate. Who are some of the Republicans you're right. looking at? Well, there are a whole slew of them, I think. Right. And I'm going to let them run around the track for a while. But I definitely would support those, any of those individuals over... Liz nominate. Cheney? Would you support Liz Cheney over Donald Trump? I don't think she could get the nomination. So, um, As much as you criticize Trump now in the book you're selling, uh, and you say you're disgusted by things he did, the tone of your departure letter uh, obviously was quite different. You wrote, uh, quote... I'm greatly honored that you called on me to serve your administration and the American people. Once again, as attorney general, I'm proud to have played a role in the many successes and unprecedented achievements you have delivered for the American people. Your record is all the more historic because you accomplished it in the face of relentless, implacable resistance. Um, Why weren't you saying then what you're saying now? This is December uh, 2020. It might have had an effect on what happened January 6th. Right. Well, you know, I... I, uh uh, at the time, that was December 14th, the states had already certified their votes. I felt the die was cast, the Rubicon was crossed, he was leaving office. I felt the thing for him to do, and what I kept on telling him is, parade your accomplishments out there, leave with some dignity, and, and, and you know, uh, put your record before the American people. So that's what you thought at the time, I, I get that. Right, and, and that's why I wrote a letter that, yeah. that laid out his achievements. I think those are achievements. I'm proud of those achievements uh, for the administration. Uh, and uh, I didn't want them to be lost sight of. But look, I, I, and and and, and yeah. yes, I, I am critical of him, definitely, sure. in the book. But I also give him a lot of credit. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you, looking <clears throat> back on it, though, knowing that he didn't take your advice, he didn't run around the country talking about Operation Warp Speed, talking about the Abraham Accords, talking about the many things you talk about in this book that you're mm-hmm. proud of, the border security, etc. Mm-hmm. Do you regret not saying something in December uh, more vociferously than you did, which may have had an effect on dampening what happened, I mean, you know, stopping what happened January 6th? Well, first, I twice came out publicly, not only on uh, December 1st to the AP reporter, mm-hmm. But also I gave a press conference before I left where I reiterated that, that there uh, was not evidence of fraud that would affect the election. And I refused to appoint an independent counsel to look into the election and so forth. I thought he was history, and I was right. He was history as of December 14th when the state certified uh, the vote. I, I believed he was leaving office, and that was that. I couldn't see ahead to the disruption of January 6th. Mm-hmm. So I didn't see any point in, in, in getting up and, and attacking him at that point, 
other than to say, look, you lost the election, leave with dignity. And But he didn't. No, he did not. You told NPR that January 6th was, quote, a riot that got out of control. So you don't think that the individuals who ran up there were trying to stop the counting, trying to stop the quote-unquote steal? Because a number of defendants have been charged yeah. by the Justice Department with seditious conspiracy. Do you think, do you disagree with those charges? Uh, I have no reason to disagree with those charges. It looked to me, and I just know what I see like everybody else, it looked to me that there was this hardcore group there that sort of came dressed for battle, you know, with right. protection and so forth. And they were definitely uh, looking for a fight. And uh, if those gr- if those people, whoever, those or anybody else, had a plan to use violence to stop the count, that would be a seditious conspiracy. You write that Rudy Giuliani will quote, you say nice things about him too, I'll, 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 but you say he will go down as a man who helped President Trump get himself impeached, not once, but as it turned out, Twice. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I think I think this this uh, thing that the, was done in Ukraine to get the Ukrainians to investigate uh, Biden was a was a silly stunt, and uh, Giuliani was deeply involved and and obviously uh, played a major role in that activity. And I thought that that had no upside and only downside, and was stupid. Uh, and then later on. After the election, he was one of the uh, key figures with this. Uh, the election was stolen. Do you think he line. believes it? I mean, Giuliani? Yeah, the, I mean, because it's just nonsensical claims, as you point out, because you and the Justice Department looked into them. I mean, you went through to make sure that you weren't missing anything. Do you think that these people believe these claims? Uh, I don't know. I really can't get into their mind. Uh, I, think, I think some don't really care. They think it's the proper... You know, it's a it's a convenient posture to be in. But I I will say that the people who were telling this to the president were so aggressive and they're so certain about what they're saying that sometimes I paused and said, you know, what am I missing? You know, why are these people so certain? But it was all bogus. In your book, you recount telling the Associated Press, as you just noted, that the Justice Department had found no evidence of widespread voter fraud there before the election. And you write this in the book. Also, you you voiced your concerns about the potential for fraud because of the increased use of paper ballots. In June 2020, you raised concerns on NPR about mail-in ballots. Take a listen. Yep. There's so many occasions for fraud there that cannot be policed. I think I think it would be very bad. But, uh, but one of the things I mentioned was the possibility of counterfeiting. Did you have evidence to raise that specific concern? No, it's obvious. NPR later issued an article correcting that claim, saying that they're quoting experts who called your claim nuts and ridiculous. In September 2020, you came on CNN uh, with Wolf Blitzer and you called it evidence of voter fraud. Take a listen. Mail-in voting is fraud with the risk of fraud and coercion. For example, we indicted someone in Texas, 1,700 ballots collected he ma- from people who ha- could vote. He made them out and voted for the person he wanted to. Okay? Now you, your, uh, your staff later admitted that you'd been given wrong information, but that, that was not accurate. It was one single ballot. Prosecutors reviewed 700 ballots, found one, hardly widespread. Um, and it was also a state case, not a DOJ one. Do you bear any responsibility for all the people out there that thought that there was going to be all this widespread voter fraud, given the fact that you were very vocally uh, sounding the alarm based on theories and bad information? Not at all. And I stand by all of that. And, and my, my view is that in a clo- such a closely divided country with so much at stake, we have to keep strong protections against fraud and protect the integrity of the election. 
And I think when they are diluted and, 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 and reduced, which they were, uh, then people are not going to have confidence in the election, whether or not fraud occurs. I think the issue of, of insure, having the public feel that it's a fair election requires a lot of vigilance and not diluting the safeguards. That's a separate question about whether fraud actually can be shown to have occurred. Now, I also was not generally attacking mail-in, but universal mail-in ballots, where they send out the ballots to the people on the voting list. I don't like they do, and I, like they do in Utah, and have for years. Perhaps, but but the bipartisan commission that looked at that this, I think it was in two thousand six said that that kind of uh, process is fraught with the risk of fraud, and I think it is. And the other thing I was talking about is uh, ballot harvesting, which I think is a terrible practice. Right. And, and uh, when, with these practices in place, whether or not fraud occurs, people are going to think there was fraud. One of the problems we have persuading people that this was a, a fair election is, you know, their concern about those kinds of practices. Yeah. I have more, and we're going to take a quick break. Uh, We'll be right back. We're back with former Attorney General Bill Barr and highlights from his new memoir, One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General, which just came out this week. Attorney General Barr, thanks for joining us again in your chapter on President Trump's July 2019 uh, call with Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, in which he, he pushed... Zelensky to investigate this wild conspiracy that it was Ukraine, not Russia, that interfered in the election, and also uh, an announcement of an investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden. Zelensky on that call was trying to get weapons he needed, uh, military aid he needed, uh, to defend his country from Russian attacks that were going on in the east of the country and that are going on right now in the whole country. Um, And those weapons, we should note, did ultimately go through because people like Pompeo and Esper and others were pushing uh, Trump to do the right thing. But looking at what Ukraine and Zelensky are going through now, wasn't what Trump did worse than what you called unseemly and injudicious? Well, when you look at the call, he does not condition uh, the aid on doing an investigation of, of Biden. You're a law enforcement guy. You know nobody says, you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. It's more, you know... And when quid pro quos happen? Well, you know, at the end of the day, if, if the weapons were delivered, uh, I, I think it was unseemly. But, uh, I, you know, if, if he had withheld the weapons and actually used that leverage uh, to extract something, that would be a different story. In my, but in looking my at mind. what they're going through now, though, doesn't it make it look even worse? Because, I mean, they really did need those weapons. Well, he was the president who delivered lethal aid. I mean, yeah. he was willing to, to arm the Ukrainians. You've said that you weren't purposely helping Trump allies when you intervened in the cases of Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. Um, Out of the 80,000 or so cases on the DOJ's annual criminal caseload, though, why did you step in with these two, which just so happened to be Trump pals that he ultimately pardoned? Right. Well, those weren't the only cases I step in. If a case comes to me, if something comes to me to make the decision, I try to make the decision. So there were other cases that you stepped in and said, this is too overzealous? Not just cases, but any incident that comes to my attention for people come for guidance or. uh, uh, How many do you think? Oh, I don't know. Several dozen. But is that what happened here or did you involve yourself? So they were different. The Stone case came to me by the the U.S. attorney brought it to me and felt that the line prosecutors who had worked for Mueller were going for much too heavy a penalty. 
two to three times what was justified. And he felt that the, they were doing this potentially to create a political storm. And it, that basically was put in my lap. And I said, I'm not going to be extorted. I think we should do whatever the right penalty is. Let's leave it to the judge. Mm-hmm. And that's the judge's job to set the penalty and lay out the, the considerations. And the judge ultimately decided on the penalty that I thought was fair, which was about three, three and a half years. So no one's ever come up with an explanation why it was bad for me to take a recommendation to do, you know, seven to nine and say, no, it's more like three, three and a half. And, and the judge came to that conclusion. One other thing I, I, I wondered just... Uh, and by if, the way, excuse me, but I knew I was going to get crucified for that because that's when the president tweeted about, about it. it yeah. and, but I said, you know, at the end of the day, my job is to do what's fair to this individual, and I am. I one, personally thought he should go to prison. One of the things that occurred to me when I was reading this section, in fact, when, I've just, when I was think, looking at those cases when they happened, is if you thought that there was overzealousness with the, the sentencing or with the, quote-unquote, entrapment of Mike Flynn, um, don't you think that that happens a lot more often than just with uh, wealthy friends of Trump? Like, don't you think that law enforcement quite often pursues maximum penalty when they don't have to or does whatever they can to, to, get a, a, to book somebody for a crime? And not just with rich friends of the president, but with yes, poor people, absolutely. black people, Hispanic people? Absolutely. And that's why my principle was that everyone deserves a right of appeal. And, you know, outside lawyers, you know, they're worrying about escalating a matter. And I said they can take it up and they can take it all the way to the attorney general if they want and let that happen. And I also stressed to the prosecutors from the very first day, I said, I don't want headhunting. I don't want people going after people for headlines or any other uh, purpose beyond being fair and, and, and exacting the penalty that that person deserves by virtue of their conduct. I believe strongly in that. And I I frankly think the Department of Justice needs a heavy dose of supervision along those lines. Mm-hmm. And had I remained as attorney general and had more time, my plan was actually to set up a, a panel to advise on this. Fairness is what we have to be all about. And it's easy when you're a prosecutor to start throwing your weight around and bullying, you know, acting like a bully. Yeah. One last question, which is about uh, Russiagate. That's what you call yeah. it in the book which you largely dismiss as a caper and a hoax and, and a fantasy of Democrats. It, it's true, I wanted to say, that, that Mueller found, and his team found no prosecutable evidence that there was conspiracy between the Trump team and the Russians, and I don't want to re- revisit sure. that. Okay. But I do wonder if, by so blithely dismissing the whole thing as just nonsense, um, are you not, you're dismissing legitimate Russian interference in the election, which they did, which you don't contest, you admit they did, uh, and a legitimate attempt by the Russians to influence foreign policy uh, through Manafort and others changing the Republican platform, etc. cetera, uh, and a legitimate attempt by the Russians to make the president more hostile to NATO, more hostile to Ukraine, which they also, through Manafort and others, did. Doesn't that help Putin by just dismissing the whole thing as a hoax when Yes, I understand your argument about the steel dossier and the dirty tricks and everything, but certainly Russia was a pernicious player here. Well, without necessarily agreeing to your characterizations of Manafort's activities and so forth, yes, the Russians tried to influence our election. They did it mainly through a hack and dump. They 
grab some <laughs> hacked into emails and then dumped them into the public. That was the influence. And uh, they tried to af affect the election in some way, and that was bad. But that doesn't mean that Trump was involved in that and that it's appropriate to try to lump him into that to hurt him politically and ultimately try to drive him from office. I have more questions for you, but I'm told we have to go. Come okay. back and we'll, Thank you, you know, we'll talk more about your book. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate your time on this. We'll be right back. And our money lead, bad news every day at the pump. Gas prices continue to reach new highs in the U.S., today averaging $4.33 a gallon, according to AAA. And while many factors are at play, COVID, inflation, now the war in Ukraine, CNN's Gabe Cohen takes a closer look now at how the world's largest oil companies are making record profits while many Americans are struggling to afford the costs of daily life. Carissa Warren's gas tank has been nearly empty for two weeks. With record prices, she's only adding enough fuel to get to and from her job and her daughter's daycare. Because if we were to fill our tanks, we wouldn't have enough cash for the rest of the week to cover the rest of our bills for that week. And that squeeze is getting tighter after President Biden banned Russian oil exports. Gas could now cost families an extra $1,300 a year. We like to be able to splurge from time to time, and it's just not an option anymore. We're considering not even doing a birthday party for our daughter this year because... <laughs> Can't afford to. Economists say price hikes are the expected result of shrinking oil supply and surging demand. But while that squeezes people like Carissa, oil companies are making record profits. A watchdog report found last year, as gas prices surged, 24 of the world's largest oil companies made $127 billion in profits. Americans were paying more at the pump and executives were getting richer by the day. When your ability to sell your product is more than double what your costs are to produce oil, you're going to experience massive profits. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. Democratic senators are now proposing a windfall profits tax for the oil industry, which would compare their new profit to the years before COVID and tax half of that excess revenue. Prices have gone through the roof because of an international cartel that drives so much of oil pricing. Morning, folks. And while President Biden has vowed to investigate price gouging by oil and gas companies, there's no time for profiteering or price gouging. Oil and gas producers are calling on Biden to relax regulations to make it easier for them to ramp up production, which crashed in 2020 because of the pandemic. But some economists claim some oil producers are strategically stalling to keep gas prices high. They're currently sitting on more than 9,000 unused drilling permits for U.S. land. So the suggestion that we are not allowing companies to drill is inaccurate. The U.S. Energy Information Agency projects U.S. crude oil production will reach a record high, but not until next year. And that's even more frightening because we don't know when it's going to stop. For hardworking families like Carissa's, little trips are now draining, like visiting her mother, who's about to have surgery. That's $80 out of my food budget now. And it doesn't sit well that corporate pockets are getting deeper as her wallet takes a hit. It's just not fair. And Jake, today I heard from the American Petroleum Institute, which represents the oil industry, and they again stress that market forces, not individual companies, control these prices. But look, to so many leaders and activists and everyday Americans, it really boils down 
to a simple question of whether or not oil companies should be able to make these sort of excess profits as a result of the war in Ukraine. As President Biden is telling Americans they need to be ready to make sacrifices and to do their part, which for millions of people right now means paying these higher prices potentially for many more months. Jake? Jabe Cohen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Millions of innocent Ukrainians have escaped Ukraine since Putin's war began. Next, I'm going to speak to a mother and father who traveled for 10 days to get to safety with their seven-week-old baby. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour from New Mexico all the way to Maine, 65 million Americans are under winter weather alerts today, and some parts of the country are bracing for a bomb cyclone. Plus, They were popular restaurants and stores one day. The next day they were empty because of the bigoted and idiotic anti-Russian backlash being felt by some small business owners here in the United States. And leading this hour, breaking news, Russia now shelling a town in western Ukraine only 70 miles from the border of Poland, a NATO country, Poland, where thousands of U.S. troops are currently deployed. This, as Pentagon officials now say, some Russian forces are advancing deeper into Ukraine and getting closer to taking key cities. CNN's Matthew Chance is in Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv as more Russian forces close in. This is a new front in Russia's Ukrainian war. Emergency workers battling flames caused by airstrikes on the central city of Dnipro. Ukrainian officials say an apartment building, a kindergarten and a two-story shoe factory were targeted and destroyed, causing casualties. To the west, in the Ukrainian city of Lutsk, just 70 miles from NATO ally Poland, a strategic airfield also came under attack. With the invasion now in its third week, Russia appears to be widening its assault. And there are concerns of escalation too. Russian state television has been broadcasting these images of fighters from Syria said to be volunteering to join the fight on Russia's side. The Kremlin backs the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad and the scenes appeared shortly after Putin told his security council that foreign fighters should be invited to join in. So if you see people who want voluntarily without payment to come and help people living in Donbass, Well, we need to meet their efforts and help them to reach the combat zone. These are thugs from Syria, said President Zelensky of Ukraine. From the country destroyed in the same way, the occupiers are destroying us, he said. Later, at a Kremlin meeting with his Belarusian ally, President Putin struck a different, upbeat tone, saying he'd been informed of certain positive shifts in recent negotiations with Ukraine, although it remains unclear what those positive shifts could be. But they don't seem to be diverting Russia from its invasion course. New satellite images suggest a massive Russian military column north of the capital, Kiev, has now dispersed, with some elements repositioned into forests and countryside around the capital. And these are the latest images from the besieged Ukrainian town of Volnavaka in the country's southeast. Russian troops moving through the streets, which are now reported to be under their full control. Bit by bit, Ukraine, it seems, is being overrun. Well, Jake, tonight we're seeing an upsurge in Russian strikes around the country, particularly in the south, in Mykolaiv, a town there, which is coming under heavy Russian bombardment right now. And also throughout the evening here in the capital, Kiev, we've been hearing explosions on the outskirts, outgoing rocket and small arms fire as well. 
as this city, the capital city, braces for what could soon turn into a concerted uh, Russian attack. Jake. Matthew, explain why the Ukrainian government is now warning that Russia may try to drag Belarus further into this war. Well, the Ukrainian government is saying that the Russians are staging provocations or planning to uh, to sort of attack Belarusian villages and towns across the border uh, to the north of Ukraine as to provide a, a sort of uh, you know fig leaf to get the Belarusians to join the fray. So far, they haven't done that, even though Belarus has been used as a staging post for Russian forces since this invasion began. Um, it's all about you know trying to bring more forces to bear on the Ukrainian front front lines. They were they were hoping the Russians this was going to be a series of lightning strikes and that Ukraine would fall quickly. That hasn't happened. Now they're asking for foreign fighters, as we saw in that report. And they're also attempting to get other countries, their allies, Belarus in particular, to join in. Matthew Chance in Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv. Thank you so much, Matthew. Please stay safe. New video just in shows a barrage of explosions during what is believed to be a Russian strike in southern Ukraine. Take a look. shelling at a large apartment complex in Mykolaiv, a U.S. defense official said today. Russia has now launched more than 800 missiles at Ukraine since the beginning of its invasion. But a U.S. source tells CNN that Russia has mostly relied upon less sophisticated so-called dumb bombs opposed to precision-guided munitions. And that choice of weapon has puzzled U.S. officials monitoring Putin's strategy. CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh is in Ukraine's southern city of Odessa. And Nick, might this intelligence help explain the types of of strikes that you've seen in that region. Yeah, I mean, it's not enormously surprising for uh, people who've been observing how Russia wages war normally. I mean, I think we we look at how the U.S. refers to its airstrikes. They use phrases like precision, etc. Russia does do that, but we've seen a distinct absence of anything precise uh, since, frankly, the first opening days of this particular war. What you've seen there in the blast against an apartment complex in Mykolaiv looks possibly like grand multi uh, rocket launcher systems hitting on an area there. We've seen the impact of that ourselves a lot, often in the uh, wreckage, finding uh, what looks like the kind of cassette um, rocket ability to drop cluster munitions in an area like that, uh, a device often designed to maximise civilian casualties. The issue here, Jake, is that we've clearly seen Russia not achieving its goals through some sort of first day's shock and awe campaign and reverting to type, reverting to, frankly, how it's always waged war, often in Syria more recently, but also in the past as well. And that's through large-scale, widespread often indiscriminate bombing, often of civilian areas, residential areas that we've seen, rockets landing in a car, in a vegetable patch, you name it, it essentially happens. It shows there's no actual precision nature to this. The rockets are fired in a bid to cause panic, terror, get people to leave, get people to perhaps rethink their affiliations. That's fairly common, certainly in Mykolaiv, certainly around the rest of the country, and it appears to have long been a tactic, Jake. And Nick, even with a heavy Russian presence, there's growing evidence of Ukrainians really fighting back in, in cities such as Mariupol and Kherson. How long are they going to be able to hold back Russian forces? 
Yeah, I mean, look, Herson, we heard today that uh, from a resident that even though they'd been, and just to give the context again of Herson, that's a key town on the east of where I'm standing on along the Black Sea coast that initially fell to the Russians and fell quite quickly. Uh, we'd seen protests there in the initial days, quite substantial protests. Now, I understand from a resident there that actually those protests do appear to have subsided to some degree. And what they now have instead is elite Russian interior ministry troops trying to run that uh, particular city. Also, so uh, they're seeing local cars simply being taken by those Russian soldiers. And so a, a, a kind of sense of not permanence to that Russian presence, but sort of more uh, civilian-natured police on the streets. Definitely no change in the local opinion. But an, an interest here, I think, as to exactly when does this Russian presence become permanent in an administrative fashion? When do they bring in the things they need to kind of run the place? And when do they stop being a military presence that's essentially offensive against the local population? That's the question we haven't got the answer to yet, Jake. Nick Payton Walsh in the southern Ukrainian city of Odessa. Thank you. Please stay safe. The United Nations says more than two and a half million people have now escaped Ukraine and made it to neighboring countries. You've seen the images of the packed train stations, the refugee shelters. Some of these desperate journeys are unimaginable. More than 44 million people lived in Ukraine before Russia invaded. Let me show you what it looked like in the early days of the war. Cars lined up for miles near the border. Listen to this. It took my next guests 10 days, 10 days, to get from the capital city of Kiev to the Polish border. And they made that journey with a newborn baby. James, who's from the U.S., and Anna, his Ukrainian wife, join me now. We're not going to share their last names for their safety. And James, it's not a good news story. You had to flee your homes, but you're safe Um, We understand you tried leaving Ukraine February 20th, a few days before Russia's invasion. What made it so tough? Was it the sheer number of other people trying to leave that made your journey so difficult? No, actually, we we left Kiev on the 20th, but um, we basically realized that it was probably there was no room for error in terms of the warnings, the security warnings. So we drove three or four hours southwest to a city called Vinitsa, which is probably a city most people didn't know about until two weeks ago, but um, and we stayed there fully hoping that we would come back to Kiev when uh, things co- sort of calmed down, we were optimistic about. Um, and uh, when the war started on the 24th, um, and we realized that people were gonna be flooding uh, west along with us, um, we tried to come up with a game plan so that we could get west with our baby without you know, being, um, Putting too much strain on her, basically. Yeah, no, that's tough. So, so we uh, tried to, um, we were originally going to go to a city called Melnitsky, but um, the people we were going to stay with, they were sick and we couldn't stay with them. So we decided to go a little bit further to another city called Ternopil. And um, it was supposed to take four hours, but we were in a, you know, obviously in a giant flow of human beings and it took us 14 hours to get there. And, um, in fact, we arrived after the curfew, so the housing we were supposed to stay at was um, we couldn't even get to the housing because the person who was going to let us in had to get back to their own home uh, before the curfew ended. And uh, family was nice enough to put us up there. And after a couple of days of uh, air raids in uh, air raid sirens, anyway, in Ternopil, we went to Lviv, um, a city everybody knows now, and uh, we. Um, went to the train station because we had tickets to see what the situation was. And um, An- yeah, Anya checked it out and realized that basically uh, we wouldn't be able to uh, cross the border as a family. 
Um, so we decided to make other plans and we drove to the border ourselves or we, we, we got dropped off and we ended up crossing the border, uh, on, on foot. Unbelievable. And luckily, luckily, um, Polish volunteers had, uh, already been arranged to come pick us up. Uh, a really nice father and son, uh, drove all the way from Warsaw to pick us up just for us, yeah. just for us and, uh, brought us here where our, our wonderful friend, John is, uh, letting us stay at his apartment. Uh, Anya, I mean, I'm so glad you guys are okay, especially Sophia. Uh, you made this journey, Anya, with your seven-week-old baby girl uh, that had to add not just a challenge getting to safer ground, but a real, a real fear and terror, I mean, about protecting your baby during this horrific situation. Yeah, it was. It's definitely... She never traveled in a car before so long time, and uh, as she need to be fed, uh, change, it was a big, big challenge for us. But safety, it was more important. She could not stay in a car seat so long. It's also not so healthy, but uh, uh, in general, it was priority to be safe and not to be under the bomb. So we, we drove like five, sometimes hours without uh, taking her out from car seats. We was very worried. But we are luckily among other people who are staying in Ukraine and who was in Kiev and Mariupol, other city who was like really Kharkiv. in Kharkiv, yeah. um, bombing. And so we was really lucky. We had the luck. Yeah, James, quickly, we're running out of time, but I want to give you an opportunity. You're an American. Your newborn daughter, mm-hmm. Sophia, is thus an American. You say you've reached out to the State Department. You say you've reached out to your senators, Menendez and Booker. Uh, to get a visa, you haven't been able to. Tell Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, tell Senators Booker and Menendez what's going on so we can get this video to them and they help you. Sure. I do have to say someone in Booker's office has been in touch with us, thankfully, but we've been in touch with the State Department, um, with the Kiev and Warsaw Embassy, and they're, they're, the method is simply just to log onto a website and get in line and... Um, it's made for people trying to get a visa to come visit America. It's not made for American families that want to get home with somebody who needs a visa to complete that journey with us. So either they need to figure out a way to get visa-free travel to family members of Americans, or they at least need to have somebody on the ground here in Poland who can kind of you know, shepherd the process because no one is even answering questions about which visas we should get or how long the process will take. It's basically just, you know, get in line. And some people say we're sorry, but most of the time it's, it's, it's a very impersonal bureaucratic process at the moment. And we don't really have a lot of clarity about how long we'll be here. Well, I'm sure now that Secretary Blinken and Senators Menendez and Booker have heard from you, they will work to fix that. And we will be welcome you to the studio in person sometime soon. James and Anya and your little baby, your little nugget there, Sophia. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad that you're safe. Thank, thank you. you so much. No more Russian vodka, no more Russian caviar. President Biden's latest push to punish Putin for invading Ukraine. Plus, they have absolutely no connection to Putin. Many of them fled oppressive Russian or Soviet leaders themselves. But now some small business owners in the U.S. are facing horrific and ridiculous anti-Russian backlash, including vandalism and worse. Stay with us. In our world lead, no new Russian caviar, vodka, or diamonds will enter the U.S. after President Biden announced a further squeeze on Russia's economy, downgrading its trading status and blocking more imports. CNN's M.J. Lee reports Russia's possible use of chemical weapons 
is rapidly becoming a top concern inside the White House. Good morning. President Biden issuing a stern new warning today to Vladimir Putin. I'm not going to speak about the intelligence, but, but uh, Russia would pay a severe price if they use chemicals. On the heels of disturbing new assessment from the U.S. that Russia could use biological and chemical weapons in Ukraine. Biden also announcing several new measures to hit Russia's economy. The U.S. banding together with G7 countries and the European Union to revoke Russia's so-called permanent normal trade relations status. Doing it in unison with other nations to make up half of the global economy will be another crushing blow to the Russian economy. It's already suffering very badly from our sanctions. Russia also slapped with additional imports and export spans. On the list, caviar, vodka, diamonds, and luxury goods like tobacco, jewelry, and high-end cars. Speaking to a gathering of Democratic lawmakers in Philadelphia, Biden making this pledge of support to Ukraine. We're going to make sure Ukraine has the weapons to defend themselves from invading Russian force. We will send money and food aid to save Ukrainian lives. We're going to welcome Ukrainian refugees with open arms. While the pleas from Ukrainian leaders only grow increasingly dire. If this continues, that means the sanctions are not enough. Russia must pay for this horrible war, must pay daily. But Biden continuing to draw this hard line. The idea that we're going to send in offensive equipment and have planes and tanks and trains going in with American pilots and American crews, that's called World War III. Meanwhile, U.S. officials working through diplomatic channels to boost global oil production as gas prices at home continue to rise. Officials eyeing oil-rich countries like the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. Some Republican lawmakers already rejecting those efforts. I cannot imagine the outrage that every single elected official here is going to hear if we then switch to buy it from Venezuela and Iran. This is a ridiculous policy. We shouldn't be looking to go to Venezuela. Now, President Biden addressed Democratic lawmakers in Philadelphia earlier today, and he said when it comes to high gas prices, that's not the Democrats' fault, that it is largely the fault of Vladimir Putin's. That, of course, is not really the full story. Gas prices, inflation, all of those were issues that this White House was confronting well before Russia started invading Ukraine. Uh, but increasingly, Jake, we are clearly seeing that this is an issue and a problem uh, for Democrats that is increasingly on their mind particularly as we get closer to the midterm elections. And, and Jay, on those chemical weapons, President Biden said Russians would pay a severe price if they followed through with that. That's right. You know, this is the uh, U.S. assessment that we have been hearing more about in recent days, that Russia could launch a biological or chemical weapons attack in Ukraine, or at least use them uh, to create a false flag operation. Uh, the president said that he's not going to get into the details of the intelligence behind that assessment, but that Russia would pay a severe price. Uh, the big question, though, Jake, is what actually is that price? Because we heard uh, President Biden again saying today that 
that what he is not going to do is send any U.S. military personnel into Ukraine in this war. So we actually don't know what that price actually is that Russia would pay uh, that the president is talking about. Uh, this is a very complicated issue uh, because this is something that, according to the U.S., uh, where Russia sort of pretends that there are uh, chemical and biological programs that are being created by other countries uh, when it is that country that is actually engaging in this kind of uh, horrible behavior. So again, we don't know exactly what the U.S. would do to make Russia pay a price if uh, Russians were to go down this path. Jake. MJ Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Turning to our money lead, Russian eateries, restaurants from coast to coast that once proudly displayed that country's heritage are feeling the wrath of American bigotry prompted by Putin's rampage thousands of miles away. The business owners, many of whom fled oppressive Russian and Soviet regimes for a safer life in America, are seeing their storefronts vandalized. Now, as CNN's Jason Carroll reports, owners and employers are left wondering whether it's time to rebrand in the face of all this ignorance. I'm going to show you the table that is called the Brodsky table. This is the special table. There are people that actually call in to reserve just this table. But not these days. Russia's invasion of Ukraine increasing worries about empty tables and fewer bookings at this restaurant in New York City's theater district. 60% of business is down. Overnight, you just wake up one day and your business is gone. Nobody's here. Vlada Vanshats is co-owner of Russian Samovar with her son. It has been in the family for three generations. Her family defected from what was then the Soviet Union to New York when she was a child. Her stepfather co-founded the restaurant with ballet dancer Mikhail Baryshnikov and Russian poet Joseph Brodsky. Everybody escaped the same evil and they all found a little piece of haven here. But now this little piece of heaven is facing the wrath of hell on earth half a world away. Calling us Nazis, fascists. Um, People leaving messages. Leaving on messages on our machine. Uh, it's never nice. Um, our sign's been kicked in. Never mind, Von Schatz is married to a Ukrainian, and many who work here are Ukrainian. All she says people see is the word Russian and lash out. And it's not just here. In Washington, D.C., the famous Russia house vandalized, threatening messages left at the Pushkin Russian restaurant in San Diego. You kill my uncle and aunt and family. You disgusting Russian. The restaurant's owner is Armenian and most of the staff Ukrainian. Similar messages sent to Chicago's Russian Tea Time restaurant, where, just like the other restaurants, some of the employees are Ukrainian. We really feel pain. We have a waitress whose mother is hiding in bomb shelters in Kiev. Some Wisconsin supermarkets have discontinued sales of Russian vodka. In Las Vegas, our bar owner is dumping Russian-made vodka. And back in New York, there is no more McPutin's. Von Schatz's children changed the name of their takeout restaurant and delivery business. Uh, I believe they're calling it Chi Chi Chicken. But the Von Schatz say they will never change the name Russian Samovar. You think you can survive this? Yes. With a lot of help from our friends, yes. Time will tell. This place has lasted through a lot of... 
And Jake, another point that Vlada's son wanted to make is he said despite everything, all of the, the terrible uh, things that this business is going through right now, he said he was hoping he could make this a teachable moment, uh, telling people that when they lash out at these Russian businesses, oftentimes they're lashing out at some of the people who work there who may be Ukrainian, they might be Romanian or, Bul or Bulgarian, some of the very same people who actually support Ukraine. Jake? Jason Carroll, thank you so much. What a disgusting display of bigotry. Thank you so much. Is North Korea's Kim Jong-un taking advantage of the Russian invasion of Ukraine? That's ahead. Topping our politics lead today, the former Attorney General Bill Barr speaking out in a new book about his time in the Trump administration. In the last hour, I asked him if he bears any responsibility for spreading false theories and at times bad information about the potential for widespread voter fraud. Take a listen. And I stand by all of that. And, and my, my view is that in a such a closely divided country with so much at stake, we have to keep strong protections against fraud and protect the integrity of the election. And I think when they are diluted and, 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 and reduced, which they were, uh, then people are not going to have confidence in the election, whether or not fraud occurs. Barr also told me that Trump is, quote, not my idea of a president. Barr said he will, quote, absolutely get involved in a Republican primary fight to help defeat Trump in 2024 if Trump runs. Let's discuss. And let me start with former U.S. Assistant Attorney Ellie Honig, who has strong feelings about Bill Barr. Uh, he said he stands by his statement uh, months and months of, of talking about uh, counterfeiting uh, ballots and, and the like. What did you make of it? Jake, this is a deeply dishonest effort by Bill Barr to whitewash history and to launder his own reputation. I thought that was a perfect example. Bill Barr is very fond of reminding everybody that weeks after the election, he came out publicly and said there's no evidence of widespread election fraud. He did that. That's good. However, this is the first time I've seen him confronted with the fact that he lied about election fraud many times over in the key months leading up to the election. And what does Bill Barr say? Not, you know, in retrospect, those statements were false. I wish I hadn't made them. I wish they didn't hurt the country. He says, I stand by all of that. He's standing by his own dangerous lies. I think that tells you something about just how dishonest and disingenuous Bill Barr is. CNN's Abby Phillip, what, what struck you most about that moment with Barr? Yeah, I mean, I think Ellie is absolutely right. I mean, Barr is standing by what you told him was a falsehood. He, You told him that what he said wasn't true, and then he said, I stand by it. Then he also says, it doesn't matter whether fraud actually occurs. It just matters whether people believe that it occurs. Well, they believe it occurs because he was making statements based on falsehoods, which were then echoed, by the way, by President Trump, who caused... Republicans to go from not believing that mail-in ballots were causing fraud to all of a sudden believing that it was enough fraud to to warrant wanting to overturn the election. As Ellie said, I mean, it's particularly dishonest given that you told him that what he said was not true. And Ellie, the Justice Department under Bill Barr was, it was frequently a tumultuous place. He once publicly compared employees to, to Montessori preschoolers. Um, that's a, quite an act for Merrick Garland to follow, huh? Yeah, uh, that was a, a moment of true arrogance by Bill Barr. Look, I've been critical of Merrick Garland for the pace and intensity of his investigations around January 6th. But I will say this. He has helped to restore two of the things that, that Bill Barr took away. First, DOJ's credibility. 
Merrick Garland, unlike Bill Barr, has not lied to us. Kind of pathetic that we have to praise the current attorney general for not being a liar. Alas, that's where Bill Barr has left us. And second of all, Merrick Garland has not politicized DOJ. You know, Bill Barr didn't really have a good answer when you asked him about why out of these tens of thousands of cases, the two he interfered in after his prosecutors had already been approved happened to be Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. Well, Merrick Garland has done nothing like that. He has not politicized DOJ. If anything, he seems to be bending over too far in order to prevent DOJ from doing anything that might be politically tumultuous. So Merrick Garland inherited DOJ that was in tough shape, but he has taken key steps towards undoing some of the damage Barr did. Um, Abby, one of the headlines, I think, from the interview was Barr saying that he would, quote, absolutely get involved and endorse another Republican in the primaries if Trump runs for reelection. What did you make of that? Well, I thought it was interesting that he uh, he seemed to say that he would support a, another candidate, but he didn't actually make it clear whether he would support Trump again, let's say, if he weren't uh, running opposed, which I think is a really key question. It's not clear at all whether Trump would be opposed if he were to run again. And it seems, based on everything that Barr had to say, there's very little that Trump actually did as president that he found to be disqualifying. And I'm not sure I came away from this interview believing that Barr actually would not support Trump if he were on the ballot as the Republican nominee. Uh, In fact, uh, he seems to just simply prefer another candidate. Uh, He doesn't think Trump has actually disqualified himself in a lot of ways. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. While all eyes are on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, North Korea seems to be up to no good. Stay with us. In our world lead today, the U.S. Treasury Department announced sanctions on two Russian individuals and three entities for supporting North Korea's weapons of mass destruction and ballistic missile programs. Let's get right to CNN's Barbara Starr, live from the Pentagon for us. Barbara, U.S. officials called North Korea's ballistic missile tests a serious escalation by Pyongyang. What exactly is going on? Well, Jake, the intelligence community is now making public. There have been two tests in February and March where they assess it was part of a new North Korean intercontinental ballistic missile they're developing. That means, of course, a missile that could be fired from North Korea and potentially reach the United States. So the Pentagon took the extraordinary step of putting out a statement saying it was going to increase collecting intelligence, reconnaissance and surveillance against North Korea, the most sensitive intelligence there is, and increase the readiness of U.S. ballistic missiles in the Asia region. The press secretary, John Kirby, explained a little bit more about why they're doing it. Clearly, these uh, these continued tests uh, are a provocation. Uh, they are a violation of U.N. Security Council uh, resolutions, uh, and they give us, as well as so many other nations, added concern about the kinds of capabilities that the, the North is, is trying to develop. What they are trying to develop is very clear. A missile they can fire, have it maintain stable flight with a precision warhead that could potentially strike a target in the United States. That is the progress the U.S. does not want to see North Korea make. And that is why they took this extraordinary step, revealing the intelligence and saying they're going to collect even more of it and hoping somehow that brings Kim Jong-un to the diplomatic negotiating table. Jake? All right, Barbara Starr at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Mother Nature playing some March Madness of her own. Most of the East Coast is under warnings for a bomb cyclone. That's next. Internationally, don't put away those winter coats yet. A winter storm passing through the heart of the U.S. is rapidly turning into a powerful bomb cyclone. If that sounds scary, well, it is. Parts of the East will see heavy snow, strong winds, and dangerous travel conditions well into Saturday. 
Columbia, Missouri already got pummeled. Look at that overturned semi. CNN's Jennifer Gray joins us now live from the Weather Center. Uh, Jennifer, 60 million Americans are under winter weather alerts this afternoon. Which areas are you most closely watching tonight? Well, tonight, Jake, we're watching places anywhere from the deep south, including Texas, all the way up through the Mississippi River Valley. And then on into the northeast as we get into the next day or so, this storm is only going to intensify as it travels to the east. And this is going to have some very, very cold air behind it. And you can see that cold air is stretching very far south. We're getting snow reports in places like Texas, Texarkana, also in northern sections of Louisiana. Could see some flakes as well. Little Rock getting very heavy snow. This is going to push into Memphis in the next couple of hours. And then you can see across Florida, the big bend of Florida really getting some heavy rain. So we could see the potential for severe weather as we go through tonight and even tomorrow with the threat of very gusty winds, large hail, and even tornadoes uh, with that. So winter storm warnings, winter weather advisory stretch all the way from northern New England down to the deep south. And so that's where we get that 60 plus million people involved in this. So the forecast radar, as I mentioned, this is going to intensify. So the storm is going to uh, get bigger and more intense as it reaches the Northeast. We're talking about very, very heavy snow along with very gusty winds. And so that's going to create blizzard-like conditions for some places in Northern New England. And then this is going to move out by Saturday, very cold air behind it. And so uh, cold air in combination with very gusty winds is going to lead to some very cold wind chills uh, by the time we get into Saturday morning across the south and then Sunday morning for the northeast and New England. So here's your rain and snow accumulation. You can see all through the Appalachian Mountains up into portions of the northeast New England. We are going to see anywhere from, say, four to six inches of snow possible. Higher elevations could see up to eight. And then as far as rain goes, we could see an inch or two of rain across the south. Jake, we're looking at that severe storm threat for the southeast for today as well as tomorrow. Uh, the Carolinas included in that. Uh, so we're going to be watching out for tornadoes. Jake. And Jennifer, you mentioned the threat of tornadoes in the south tonight. What areas there should be on alert? Yeah, so we need to be on alert anywhere from, say, the Florida Panhandle all the way up through the Carolinas. Now, some of these storms could be rolling through at night. We know that nocturnal tornadoes can be especially deadly. So definitely make sure you have a way to get alerts as you're going to bed tonight, Jake. And this could uh, impact all weekend travel, uh, especially big cities. Yeah, we're talking about big cities in the Northeast, D.C., New York, Boston. A lot of that as we get into the weekend, not only the snow is going to be because of wind. We're going to have very strong winds uh, with this system. Look at places like Atlanta. We could see winds up to 40, 50 mile per hour gusts. That's really going to delay flights through Atlanta by the time we get into Saturday. And then Sunday, we could see wind delays uh, in places like New York City, Boston, as those winds reach that area. But New York City and Boston could also see, as well as D.C., could also see some travel delays due to uh, the wintry precipitation as well, Jake. Jennifer Not a good weekend for travel. Nope, not at all. Thank you so much, Jennifer Gray. Coming up, the time that Dolly Parton sang to me. That's next. Finally, from us and our money lead today, CNN announced today that our new streaming service, CNN Plus, is going to launch on March 29th. That's in two and a half weeks. The streaming platform will feature exclusive news shows, documentaries, plus lots of familiar and new faces. CNN Plus will also feature an interactive interview club and also my new book club. 
I'm going to talk to up-and-coming authors, bestsellers, some unexpected writers, such as, in our very first episode, country music legend, businesswoman, philanthropist, Dolly Parton. Parton teamed up with international bestseller James Patterson to co-author Run, Rose, Run, a thriller about a young woman trying to make it in country music in Nashville while also trying to flee her dark path. No Dolly Parton project, of course, would be complete without music. She wrote and performed an entire new album of songs that the characters sing in the book. It's incredible. On page one, chapter one, uh, there's a song that is like an anthem. I have it here. I have a little recording of it. I was just going to play it. But okay. Unless you would be willing to grace us with some actual... Well, I want to hear what you got first. <laughs> Is it easy? No, it ain't. Can I fix it? No, it ain't. But I sure ain't gonna take it sitting down. Yeah, you gotta woman up and take it like a man. It's like you gotta do all the things you gotta do. You gotta be as good as or better than. It's like you gotta be strong enough to do it if you're gonna try to outdo somebody or at least do your best. You just gotta do that, which that's one of my favorite songs in the album. That's one he loved. That's the first I thing I sent him. He, ne- he hadn't heard the music at all. Is it easy? No, it ain't. Yeah, can I fix it? No, no I, can't. I can't. But I ain't gonna take it sitting down. Yeah. And that's kind of how I've lived my life. And the character, she's strong. Even if she's singing a sad song, she's strong and she's wise. To learn more about CNN Plus, go to cnnplus.com. Please join my book club. You can sign up for our newsletter. Go to CNN.com slash book club newsletter. CNN.com slash book club newsletter. And yes, this new show means that I work more than nine to five. Before we go, the images out of Ukraine are heartbreaking. Millions of Ukrainians are on desperate journeys to try to find safety. We know so many of you watching the devastation are asking, how can you help? CNN has compiled a range of resources online to try to provide humanitarian aid, and you can find that at cnn.com slash impact. Be sure to tune in to this Sunday's State of the Union. My colleague Dana Bash is going to talk to the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, Republican Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, plus the mayor of Kiev. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at The Lead. CNN, you have ever missed an episode of the show? You can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer, Right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you Monday. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.